This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Hello, everyone, and welcome to day three of AIDC. Thanks for being here. Um, I'd like to welcome you to Master's Ninder Billing on making programs that people will, wa- will want to watch while not selling out. So welcome, Ninder. I would first like to um, start by respectfully acknowledging the traditional owners of the land, the Boomerang and Woiwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation, and pay respect to the elders past, present, and emerging. Uh, you're in good hands with Karina this morning. Karina Holden is the head of factual at Northern Pictures, so I'll let you take it away. Thanks, Karina. Thank you and good morning. I'd like to also acknowledge the traditional owners and the land in which we're meeting today and welcome everybody from hopefully an exciting night last night. Nice to see you're up early. Um, we're in for a treat today with Ninda. She's travelled from uh, London to be with us. Ninda is the head of specialist factual at The Garden Productions, an amazing production company who has done great work and Ninda herself has won uh, BAFTAs and um, Peabody's for her work that she's made. So uh, we should probably just kick off. We're going to show a couple of clips and if there's questions, we probably will wait to the very end of the session. But we've got an hour to have a conversation. Great. So we really want to know, was Ninda Billing always going to be a documentary filmmaker? Oh, gosh. Um, no, I wasn't. Uh, I... Um, I wasn't going to be a documentary filmmaker because I didn't think I would be allowed to, actually. When I was uh, growing up, I did not see myself reflected in any of the stories that I was seeing on screen. I I didn't feel that they were about me. I didn't feel they were made for me. I didn't feel as if documentaries cared whether I watched them or not. So it was a world that was really exclusive for someone like me. So I didn't, I didn't think documentaries was a space that I was allowed to go into. You know? uh, and so I uh, forged a path in current affairs, which felt to me like it was, it was on my doorstep. It was the world around me. It's what the stories that are happening under my nose. And so I just thought, yes, I, I understand these stories, and these stories are uh, about my world. And so I can definitely tell these stories, and I can, you know, I can get in, into, into that and uh, do it with some authority. Whereas I thought the documentaries... I would just be out of my depth and I wouldn't speak the language and you know, I wouldn't know, how to, wouldn't know how to hold my cup of tea properly if I was in the room with these people. You know? Wow, so, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and what were the programmes you were watching then when you were growing up? Were they current affairs films or yeah, were, were you were. looking at documentaries with uh, no, they were hungry cur- eyes? The, uh, uh, current affairs because um, coming, uh, my parents... Uh, immigrated into uh, the UK and so and they came from a small village in India so they didn't know anything about Britain um, I mean they couldn't even read or write so they came to Britain and they were just thinking what what is this country that we, we've come to you know the motherland and uh, so we had come to fairs on all the time as they were trying to make sense of the world as well and they were trying to make sense of, of Britain and what Britain is and who lives there and and, you know, what we're meant to do, now, now we're here. So that, I was, I was in, that, in that world. Um, but in watching Current Affairs, uh, what I saw coming through in those really piercing investigative pieces uh, was that 
these were filmmakers and journalists who were really speaking truth to power. And that, that is a really potent place mm. to be. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, in and of itself, it's a powerful position to be in. So I just kind of thought, well, I'll have me some of that power then, please. <laughs> like, I can't have it over there. But this feels like, you know, this is a good space to be in where you feel like you can, your voice can be heard. Yeah. You know, for, in, a, in a meaningful way. And how did you navigate there? I know there's lots of people in the room who are established filmmakers. There's probably some who are emerging as well. Everybody's had a very unique journey. Yeah. But how did you make that very first step into the actual process of storytelling? Um, so, I mean, you know, people say you, you make your own luck, don't you? So I was writing for uh, a small local newspaper. Uh, and then a story that I wrote got picked up by a production company who said uh, the story was about uh, Asian women committing suicide uh, and uh, cheery. Uh, and uh, they thought, oh, that would make a good Channel 4 documentary. So they then approached the paper and said, we'd like to use the story. And uh, the editor said, well, why don't you uh, take Ninda as well, then, because she wrote it. Mm. So that's how I then got into that first that first uh, experience of television. But uh, not on really. screen? It wasn't an ambition to necessarily be on screen? It was just part of... I, well, actually, really, you've just reminded me. <laughs> so they, in those early days, there were a few attempts to put me on screen. Oh. I was really shit at it. <laughs> I mean, really, really bad on camera. And, you know, and I just kind of thought, oh, how hard can this be? It's really hard, isn't yeah. it, being on camera? So there were a couple of times when people would put me on camera and say, oh, no, just ask those questions on camera. And it, it was just, it was, uh, yeah, I failed miserably. Yeah. And so then I just took a step back and thought, yeah, I'm much better behind behind the camera. Well, I, yeah. I, can, I can relate a little bit from the point that I had actually, it was my writing that got me my first television job. Oh, yeah. I was writing about reproductive ecology of snakes, though, so quite different. But yeah. it is amazing yeah. where Equally many gripping. of us started our journeys into um, what I think is a really broad church that you now work in, in terms yeah. of the types of film you, may, yeah. you make now. It's mm. having a little bit of an edge of expertise, having a, a point of view. Yes, yeah. Mm. And, and actually... Um, I'm glad that I didn't go straight into uh, documentaries because I fear that I would have just stayed in that uh, furrow. Mm. Uh, but moving from current affairs through to fact ends and formats, through to reality, back to current affairs, into documentaries now in specialist factual, um, traversing that really broad range, that landscape, means for me, means that uh, I'm able to cross-fertilise all the time and I really advocate that I think it's you know to step outside of the that space in which you feel very comfortable uh, can be a really creative process because you take the storytelling skills that you may have in documentaries or you know for me the investor skills that I had in current affairs and you take those into a different realm you, you don't leave them there but you, so you're informing the work you do over here with that experience that you've got from a slightly different field and so that I think that only enriches you know, the work that you're doing over here gives that work an edge, gives it a slightly different perspective from what other people might be doing in that world as well. And I, I, you've talked to me about um, one of the opportunities that you see as being able to forge your career is working in a place where everybody's on the same level and sharing the same kitchen. 
And yeah. when you're making a cup of tea in the kitchen with other people, that this idea that um, progression in your career comes from this um, communal spaces that you get to be exposed to other people. Do you want to just talk yeah, about that? Yeah, that's a it's something that I talk to uh, emerging program makers about quite a lot. When people come and they have a really purest idea of what they're going to do I'm only going to make this type of documentary I'm only going to work in this type of company I'm only going to speak to this kind of person because those are the people who I respect and I admire and only uh, with this type of work and I think that's um really limits uh your opportunities uh and limits your creativity as well if you do you know if you take a job which is in, with a company you like but not doing the kind of programs that you really want to make well you're in that space and so you're they're exposed to you, you're exposed to them. And in that organic way, then relationships can, can be fostered, which uh, you might not otherwise come across if you're just waiting for that singular opportunity which talks directly to the one thing you want to do. Yeah, great. And, and maybe now is actually a good time to show a clip to show how broad your work has been. Okay. Uh, maybe you can explain to us, we're going to have a look at something that was uh, quite early on when you were at the BBC. Yeah, so um, I, uh, when I went to the BBC, uh, I've been in and out of the BBC quite a few times in, in my career, um, and I was in, I was in documentaries, uh, and I was focused on making documentaries for BBC Three, which is uh, for the uh, 16 to, then it was 16 to 30-year-olds uh, audience, BBC audience. And my development team came up with an idea uh, which we took to BBC Three, and BBC Three said, no, actually, it's not for us. I thought, this is a great idea. So uh, I then took it to the controller of Children's BBC. I've never made children's programmes in my life, but I thought this is a good children's uh, potential, potentially a good children's format. And the controller of CBBC uh, met me and said, yes, okay, let's, let's do it. And so we made this... Uh, so I then moved across and found myself making kids' TV, uh, factual... Uh, uh, this factual format, which is called Marrying Mum and Dad. Uh, and the idea behind it was that our notions of family have changed so significantly over the last 30 years. So whereas traditionally there was you know, the idea of the nuclear family, mum, dad, got married, had kids, that's how, that's how it worked. But uh, we've just seen that splintered into so many different uh, forms. Um, but there was a, and there'd been a lot of, there'd been a lot of work and a lot of essays written and articles written about blended families and step families and, and all of this. Uh, but what I thought was lacking was a kind of a, a celebration of these new family formations, these new family dynamics, and something which made uh, the young people who are caught at the heart of it made them feel normalised in their experience and celebrated in their experience and not. Uh, that it's something which they have to, not to, to detract from the fact that a lot of young people, you know, have to deal with this and it presents its own challenges, but just that there is another side to that story, which is about the celebration of different people who are coming together. So Marrying Mum and Dad came out of that conversation that we were having and uh, the idea that often you had a couple who were together and they had children who may have come from different relationships uh, uh, and the, the couple hadn't got married. So how would it be, with kind of strains of don't tell the bride about it, how would it be if the children organised the wedding for their unmarried parents? Great. Well, let's have a little look at the clip then. It's marrying mum and dad. When the kids take charge of organising their parents' wedding. 
you're in charge. Yay! You can do whatever you want. Check this out! Mum and Dad have no idea what you're planning. <laughs> You've only got a few weeks to do it all. Helicopter time! Are you ready for it? Woo! Oh, we got the moving! <laughs> Are your parents ready for it? Yeah! Pretty scary. <laughs> Will the day be filled with chaos or confetti? On today's show, we've got three wedding planners working in top secret to pull off the ultimate big day. <laughs> but could their surprises be too much for their parents? Oh, no. <laughs> and will the day turn out to be a real thriller? Good luck. We're going to be watching you the whole way. Or have they taken on Mission Impossible? We're about to find out. Because we're marrying Mum and Dad. I think it's really... Um, hopefully we've set up the expectations. We've got a really significant filmmaker here who has done incredible work, won top prizes, and we're kicking off with a kids' format. I think that's brilliant. And it, I think that the inspiration here is really... Um, there's, there's room to play with ideas in so many different forms. And maybe you can talk a little bit about that, Ninda, because obviously the current affairs background you had, for example, yeah. at Channel 5, it was something completely different. You're in charge of all of the news programming there. Yeah. Um, and yet we've just seen what you were doing when you were playing yeah, at that is actually so that is a bit nuts. This is kind of that. mucking with and our heads a bit, right? When I was uh, running news at Channel 5, I had to uh, work out what uh, the channel's response was to the Brussels terror attacks or the Paris terror attacks and like how we were going to deploy our band news uh, out to there. So it sat alongside, uh, you know, vampire-themed <laughs> weddings. It does, it is, a, it is a bit crazy. But I, that, that's just about... Wanting to, you know, I think TV is, you know, when you work in TV, you're in a really privileged position. You go to, it's not like, you don't go to the office every day and do the same thing, clock in, clock out. And I think if you don't make the most of, some people don't, you know, not everyone has to, but for me, I just feel like there's, it's a, it's a complete land of opportunity. And so I'm just a bit, a bit greedy for all of those different experiences and yeah. just, you know, rock up and, you know, do your very best work, whatever that work is. I and mean, with that marrying mum and dad format, actually, uh, so I was watching it, I came with an idea that it was going to be very kind of documentary and unfolding. And, I, and we went back and forth, real, really hammer and tongs uh, on that before it ended up in this form, which is really heavily formatted with, you know, big format beats all the way through. And it was right, that's right for the audience. But uh, so, you know, just being open to that conversation and not saying this is how it's going to be, and if it's not like that, I'm, I'm leaving the room, I think is really, you know, that's, it's, you have to be realistic mm. about what's going to get you, the projects that you want to get away, how you're going to get them away, who's going to buy them, who wants to pay for them, what they need, as well as what you think the project should be or how it should, you know, how it should feel. And this format itself was very successful. I mean, how many times Seven now? seasons. Seven seasons Yeah, now. And in fact, it was rested. I think it's coming back again for an eighth, an yeah. eighth season. In fact, the presenter has now taken a, whatever it is, a qualification, so he can now marry people. Okay. <laughs> now, the, the twist the on celebrant. the format is that he can, yeah, he can really? turn up and be the celebrant as well. So... I mean, I guess if, if it had been uh, originally a documentary, it wouldn't have had that that life 
and still be made. Is that something when you're looking at uh, an idea and how it can have a longevity shelf life and potentially translate into different places, is that something that you're thinking of? Well, yeah, I mean, I think increasingly we do think about that, don't we? We think about... uh what uh, do people want to put money into a one-off or do they want something which feels like it's a returner, that it can be a brand, it can be a, you know, it can do some really significant business for the channel. And, and having been a commissioning editor, I understand that even more so now that uh, when you're trying to take a factual idea and think, has it got life beyond a one-off? It's not because you want to lessen the integrity or the quality of that idea. In fact, what you want to do is amplify it Mm. uh, and you want to see how much more you can get out of all of the clever thinking that's been done uh, around this. And so I think we should all, uh, for the right projects, lean into that, really, Mm. and just think, how do I... I've got one good idea. um, How can I make that into something which is which is repeatable. I mean, it becomes more enticing as a, as a proposition for, for any uh, channel if they feel like they can come back to that. Uh, and we know, as program makers as well, mm. that all the effort that you take to make one program uh, and the effort that you take to make a series, it's not like it's 10 times the effort to make a series because so much hard work is done in the inception and the birth of that, that uh, proposition in the first place. Mm. But if you can then roll that out... Not, not all ideas will, will tolerate it. Right? So there's, you know, yeah. some it's, just, it's a documentary, it's a story that needs to be told once. That's that. But, uh, you know, there, there might be a strand of the way in which that story is, is told, that, uh, you know, innovation of form, which means you can take that mode of storytelling to another subject. It doesn't detract from the, uh, the first story that you've told, but just perhaps gives it a bit of, bit of life beyond... So tell me a little bit about the move inside the broadcaster then. When you went into Channel 5, mm. you went from being a program maker to a decision maker, a commissioning yeah, yeah, editor. Yeah. How did that H-10 go, H-10 come H-10 about H-10. And, and how did you have to move your kind of thinking around that? Yeah, It's fascinating actually. It's fascinating to go from production into, yeah. into a channel because then one of, the most, one of the best bits about it was I, I finally understood what commissioning editors meant when they were saying things. So when they didn't, they, they go back to you. you know, it's one of the most infuriating things, isn't it, as a filmmaker? And you're thinking, you know, I've worked my ass off trying to get this, this proposal to you and I've you know, done all the things you told me I had to do and got it to you on that deadline. And then you said you were going to go and take it into the room to discuss with your boss on Tuesday and now it's Thursday and I haven't heard back and what's the matter with you and didn't know, you know how many sleepless nights I had staying up just trying to get it. And actually, the commissioning editor will, may, may have taken it in on that day that they said they were going to take in. And in that room, at that moment, you're saying, mood's not right. Mm. You know, if I talk about it now, mm-hmm. it's going to die. So I just have to take it away and I have to come back with it. And so there's a, there's a whole process from when you've delivered your brilliant proposal, your treatment, your sizzle, whatever it is that you've delivered to the channel, to it being talked about internally. There's a, there's a moment in there where you have to trust that the person who you're working with is going to pitch it at the right time because everyone's pitching to someone. Yeah. You know, that's everyone is, you know, you always work, you know, you've always got someone over there who you have to convince that this is the right project that deserves this amount of money. Uh, and you have to work out when the right time is 
to that's going to have the, the best possibility of success. So that was a real revelation for me that when comrades don't get back to you, it's not because they hate you, it's not because they, they're ignoring you, and it's not because they don't value the work that you've done. It's because oftentimes what they're trying to do is give it the greatest chance of success. Mm. And then there's this whole other thing, which is understanding what a channel needs and what how a channel works and uh, what how channels look at uh, proposals that come in and the work that you know, each of those individual pro uh, programs has to do uh, collectively for the channel strategy as well. And understand there's all that stuff that goes on over there. So it is about taking the best ideas, but then they have to arrange them in yeah. a certain configuration to give them the channel its best chance of success. Its identity too. Yeah. And... What kind of volume were you being hit with at the time? I mean, being a champion for a project is great, but, like, how many program ideas were you being pitched and were you allowed to be moving through? What, what, what's the volume like typically for when you were at Channel 5? What were you dealing with? Well, I, because I was looking after news, I was uh, looking after about 20, 20 hours of um, live uh, of, of TV every week that was just you know, that I had to oversee. And on top of that, um, I was, uh, alongside my other colleagues at Channel 5, looking at uh, uh, factual ideas. And so taking meetings and receiving ideas, you know, through email, it's um, non-stop. It's, it's just absolutely non-stop. You just continue being asked to read, respond, read, respond, investigate further, take a meeting, take another meeting. And you want to do it, you know, that's what you pay for and that's why you're, you know, mm. you're in the job, right, because you want to get the best ideas. Um, but it is incessant. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so what's the cut through? What were the things that you were looking at that were really cutting through for you? What were the important things that you really wanted to make sure were was part of your cultural legacy for uh, Channel 5? Uh, well, I would say that across the piece, because um, I commissioned Fast Turnaround Current Affairs, I commissioned uh, Factual Formats, uh, Docs, um, Reactive Docs, so a really broad range of Factual, and that, and that Channel 5 and that all the commissioning editors were all commissioning into the same Factual space, so it wasn't that you had a specialism. Uh, and so, I mean, apart from the, the obvious, you know, it's got to be distinctive, it's got to tell an original story, you know, it's got to have some kind of, you know, exciting creativity or, you know, proposition at the heart of it. Uh, I also uh, brought to it a, a, just a desire for the programmes that I was commissioning to be properly representative of our audience uh, because it's too easy to not do that mm -hmm. it's too easy not to insist on that uh and so sometimes i would and, and in the uk actually but uh, i would say it's changed a lot and people are much more mindful and not just mindful but really understanding how important it is to be representative uh in uh terms of the diversity of people who are on screen as well as off screen but at that time, I was looking at, you know, proposals would come to me or um, people would sit around. Uh, I mean, first of all, you know, it was totally usual that you go into a room and you sit down and it's just, it would be a, a room full of uh, white men and there'd be you. 
and you're just saying, right, you've got 10 people around this table. Yeah. There, yeah. Just from like, a smart point of view, could you not just get one woman in, you know, to say that you're not just all of you, all thinking the same thing, all from the same perspective? Um, so there was this, this desire to make sure that you, you know, I, I, I was pushing indies to make sure they were thinking about that all the time. And if they weren't thinking about it, they had to kind of go away and then come back to me once they had thought about it, because it's not good enough just to say, well, these are the only people you can find. That's rubbish. Mm. You know, you've got to work harder. Is there anything particularly that stands out from your time at Five that you're really proud of? Oh, uh, yeah, for lots of different um, lots of different reasons. There are lots of different things. There were some cheeky things, cheeky commissions, which are fast turnarounds, which worked off the back of it. There was a big drama about... Um, a girl who disappeared uh, that was being played on BBC One, and we just thought, well, you know what, we just do a little cheeky fast turnaround hour, factual hour, about what really happened there. And we played it, and got ridiculously huge numbers. And you, know, you, can, you can tell, and I bumped someone at the BBC, and they're just thinking, why, didn't, why hadn't we done that? We knew for two years that drama was, gonna, was coming down the tracks, and no one had thought to tell their factual department, oh, we're doing this, you might want to think about it so that that kind of you know being a bit agile a bit cheeky yeah uh and slightly irritating people for them thinking oh, i wish we'd done that then that's always fun i think that yeah. idea of having fun and being mischievous is an excellent thing that commissioning editors need to cultivate as yeah well. yeah i think you do because otherwise you get really bogged down in mm. you know feeling like you've got to do the right thing or you've got to do the right thing by your paymaster you're having I think filmmakers want their commissioning editors to be confident, right? Mm -hmm. You want your commissioning editors to be creative and confident and brave. And I think, you know, that's what makes a good commissioning editor, somebody who can understand how to work with a creative community, uh, but brings to every project their own sense of creativity as well. So that when you come together and you work together and you collaborate, then you make that idea better because you've all come to work on it together and then you all leave the room thinking I learned something from you I learned something from you and as a result of it this idea has become exponentially better by the the meeting of those those minds so you then took a step into the garden your yeah move from inside a broadcaster to a production company and then finally I was in the garden it's like you know it's the best factual production company in, in Britain so finally I was in Yes. I was in the doors, those doors that I thought were, you know, so close to me, you know, when I first started. And then, yeah. And how did, how did they tempt you across from inside the broadcaster? Was it just the need to go back to program making? Yeah, there was a, a, for me, conference? there was a, a need to go back to program making. Commissioning editing uh, is really political, really political. Um, mm. I, and I'm a program maker at heart. So I just thought, you know, done that, learnt a lot from that. Let's just get back into, back into program making and go somewhere where the programs that they're making are groundbreaking, innovative, distinctive, um, and where actually everyone does go to do their best work. Maybe we can have a look at a clip now from one of the first shows that you were involved in. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what we're about to see? So uh, the, the Garden makes a series called 24 Hours in Police Custody and has been making that for a, uh, a number of years. And so our relationships with uh, police authorities in the UK is good uh, and our um, uh, 
the way in which we're regarded, our reputation is also, you know, is stellar. And it's something which we carefully cultivate, we carefully guard, and uh, uh, we respect the way in which the police are always open with us. But it does allow us then to make more inroads into that space and talk to um, police authorities about releasing more material than they otherwise might mm -hmm. and giving us uh, greater access than, than they might otherwise do with other production companies um, because there's more trust from the outset. Uh, so Police Tapes uh, was uh, a series which was commissioned before I got to the garden, but I went into Exacet. Uh, and takes uh, three, and then we did some more, uh, prominent uh, murders uh, in the UK and looks at the story of the investigation in a really forensic way. So it's really, it's, at the heart of it is the police interrogation, the police interview with the main uh, suspects. Uh, and we use that as the spine all the way through the documentary. And from that... We jump off to tell the stories from the perspective of forensics, of the investigating officers, of um, the senior um, team, and uh, how day by day that story, that investigation unfolded, and always also talking to um, family uh, where possible about the impact of that investigation uh, and th uh, through their eyes as they saw it unfold. Uh, so uh, it was an ITV primetime series and this uh, documentary, The Murder of Becky Watts Becky was uh, 15 when she uh, was murdered um, really horrifically uh, by people close to her uh, the story had dominated the headlines at the time um, and then it, was, it wasn't many years later just a couple of years later that we re revisited uh, that story. So long enough for there to be convictions, for there not to be any issues around subjudice, mm -hmm. um, but recent enough for people to remember that and, and say, oh, hang on, I kind of remember that story. What really happened? Yeah. What really happened there? Yeah, great. Well, let's have a look. The search for Becky Watts continued today. Family and friends scouring the parkland and woods near her Bristol home hopeful they will find the 16-year-old safe and well. Becky has now been missing for nine days. Detectives have no idea where she is, but forensics have had a breakthrough and are analysing a fingerprint and traces of blood found outside her bedroom. Meanwhile, police ask Becky's stepbrother Nathan and his girlfriend Shauna back to the station for more questions. The information that the investigators have within the team that are saying to me they're being evasive, they're the last people potentially to see uh, Becky alive, so they're quite significant, they're significant witnesses. And I think your experience as a detective shows you quite often those people that purport to be the last person to see the individual alive potentially are the suspects. Despite their suspicions, the police have no evidence to link the pair to Becky's disappearance. So they target Shauna, to work out if the couple are holding anything back. Machine's recording. Has, he, has Nathan had any sort of concerns about speaking to us? Not that he told me now. No. If he does, I wouldn't know that. <laughs> yeah. How is he finding it? 
Um, he's found it quite hard, actually. Yeah. Or again, knowing how hard it'd be for his mum at the moment. You know, because Becky was almost like her daughter, daughter to her. Yeah. You know, and it has been very stressful for Angie. In another interview room, Nathan is giving a different account of the family dynamics. So how would you describe your relationship with Becky? Mm. Don't particularly talk to her, but obviously I don't particularly like her. And obviously what annoys me is the way she speaks to like my mum sometimes. Mm. She'd be kind of like rude or whatever, or trying to think of an actual specific time. Um, it's a revelation, but it's not enough to detain him. Then the investigation takes a dramatic turn. Forensics come back with their first results. The fingerprint in the blood belongs to Nathan. Everything needs to be put in context. The context here was Nathan and Becky didn't appear to get on. And this is the advantage of the, uh, the, the significant witness interviews and building that victimology and building that picture. So how could that blood be in, with his fingerprint in upstairs on the first floor, a location that we don't think Nathan went frequently? So that's the first real big turning point. It will take another 12 hours for the DNA results to reveal whose blood it is. This gives detectives time to plan their response. If it is Becky's blood with Nathan's fingerprint in it, we will arrest. We will arrest immediately. We will arrest for kidnap. The results come in. It's Becky's blood. An arrest team tracks down Nathan and Shauna to a suburb of Bristol. The police are still hoping to find Becky alive and now urgently need to question the couple. The reason I've come here is to make an arrest of yourself, OK? And what I'm going to do is explain everything here now, OK? Just put your hands like that for me, all right? So the reason we arrested for kidnap at that point is we need to give ourselves the best possible opportunity we can possibly have of recovering her if she's still alive. And the whole investigation is just set up to make sure that if she's still alive, we save life. That's our primary objective. When we complain and hit sisters, yeah? It was like seeing someone else's family go through it when I heard that two people had been arrested. Again, the ages gave it away. I knew who it was before the police told me. And I can't say I was particularly surprised. If it was going to be something bad, it didn't surprise me. Nathan hated Becky and made it obvious. So I guess what you've got there is the immediacy of the actual police tapes that forms mm. the main grammar of that particular series. And it speaks also to uh, police, uh, 24 hours in, in police custody as well, really, yeah. this, this idea that the audience is given a, a window into something that they're uh, not learning through current affairs, they're actually seeing it for themselves. Yeah, and uh, the difference between this, uh, uh, several differences between this and police custody, but uh, you can see how one um, begat the other, if you like, uh, with this is because this is for ITV, yes, and so it's a different audience to uh, custody, which is Channel Four, uh, and an ITV audience really wants um, to be led more. Uh, 
through the storytelling. And so you see there we've got the um, on-screen journalist, and she's actually a um, she is a journalist. She's also uh, ITV's uh, breakfast program presenter as well. So she's very known face to the audience. Uh, and we had to, and again, there was a real tussle in terms of how do we keep the storytelling pure, uh, you know, when you've got this presenter and how do we make her not a presenter? So she rocked up. She's a properly qualified journalist, but she was really expecting to, when I do my pieces to camera, and so well, there aren't any pieces to camera. Well, how, how do we tell the story? How do I tell the story to the audience without, without that? And so trying to find a way through where you take on board what that audience uh, needs and wants, um, but still staying true to our idea of this story unfolding and the events unpacking and that providing the momentum for the storytelling rather than the uh, reporter standing up and saying, at this point, this is what happened, you know. Mm. Uh, that was a, a really uh, tricky creative process, actually, to go through because, you know, that story is... it demands a, a slowness as well because you know as with all these you know with with, with many uh, murder investigations the police got a really good hunch really early on about what you know what's going on but the way in which we unpack the story for the audience can't tell it in that way we need mm. to be more sophisticated in our storytelling to draw the audience along along with us and allow all of the kind of the granular detail of those interviews to speak to and to uh, intrigue as you know, as as the film develops. So, in some ways, uh, the garden, having done a lot of fixed rigged series before, so twenty four hours in police custody, twenty four hours in A and E. I know um, Magnus Temple was here a couple of years ago at AIDC, and he he spoke about that process of how twenty four hours in A and E was made, and I thought mm. that was tremendous actually to mm. understand. 34 episodes shot in six weeks, 1.6 days of filming per episode for mm. that fixed rig, um, but the hundreds and hundreds of hours of material. Mm. Um, that kind of leads me to Operation Live, which has uh, been a big show, and in some ways it's it's the that immediacy of storytelling that comes through fixed rig, um, but now we're moving into a live space with it. Yeah. Do you want to talk to me about Operation Live and how that emerged with your conversations it emerged because um channel five had said to us will you do uh a and e live that was, was the first conversation uh, and we thought about it and we thought actually that doesn't work as well as perhaps being live in other spaces in the medical arena do and we had a conversation with the channel and we started thinking what can we do that's live, and why do it live in the medical space? Uh, and just thinking about, you know, all the variables of, you know, different people coming in and out of A&E and things and consent and all that, but like, it was just too tricky, you know, to, to do anything meaningful in that space. You just can't, can't achieve it properly. But then thinking about surgery, in the surgical space, there is a, it's a discrete story with a beginning, middle, and end. The surgery starts, the surgery happens, the surgery finishes. So, the, you know, there is a story to be told there. And we started thinking about, so, you know, there are a lot of uh, programs about cutting-edge surgery, about pioneering, pioneering surgery, uh, uh, which focus on surgeons who are doing very difficult uh, things. But nobody was telling a, 
the story of everyday surgery in um, a properly well, granular way, in the way that police tapes does that as well. Uh, and so what we wanted to do was unpack... It's, like, it's the world at the end of your nose. You know, it's happening all the time uh, around us. But people say, I'm going in for a particular surgery and I'll be out in a couple of days. You think, all oh, right. But actually, what happens mm. in that theatre, it is theatre, is astonishing. Mm. And so we thought, right, okay, so that feels like a valid place to put our cameras, to start thinking about a rig. Uh, and if we do it live, what that does is it really presses home that this surgery is happening all the time around us. It's not one surgery that's taken four years to get to and we don't know what the results are it's going to be. And, you know, there's all of that jeopardy for that type of surgery. This is everyday jeopardy. Every day, these, these surgical teams are taking people's lives in their hand and just doing it. Uh, and the skill which they bring to that moment is, I mean, it's just, it's mind-blowing. When you stop and you look at it, you just think, I had no idea that this is what happens. And you know, when you're, you know, as a program maker, when you're in that, that moment, when you're in an arena and you find yourself thinking, I had no idea that that's what really happened, then that's the start of thinking, well, if I don't have any idea, then a lot of people don't have any mm. idea, and it feels fascinating to me, so is there a fascinating program to be made about this particular space? So that's kind of how it, how it came about. And it's incredibly difficult because if you want to, you know, we're saying, okay, we're going to broadcast surgery, proper, not keyhole surgery, proper cut open your chest, you know, split open your limbs surgery. Uh, and we want to do that live then immediately you're thinking that's some brave commissioning yeah yeah well we're not going to cross live but we are going to look inside a chest now um anyone who's a little bit squeamish there's your warning but we're going to have a little look at uh, a moment from season one of operation live tractor going into the chest So we've opened the we've opened the uh, chest, and you can see the thymus here, and you can see the lungs on either side. So what we're going to do is carefully dissect our way through the the thymus, which is uh, it's in front of the heart and the pericardium, making sure we cauterise all these big blood vessels that are in the way. And uh, we're about to open the pericardium, which is the lining of the heart. Open the pericardium now, which is the lining of the heart. And you can probably just see the heart peeking out there as we
Take the Roberts, thanks. Heparin, thanks, Claire. Heparin. Thank you. We're just giving some heparin. It's a drug to make the blood thinner so that when we go and bypass, the blood doesn't clot inside. So if somebody was going in for heart surgery and you watched that, would that give you a sense of relief or panic? I wonder. Um, I mean, how do you make a program like that? What, what's involved in terms of production and ethics and cameras and um, who's telling us the story here? It's a, um, it's a very delicate process um, and obviously not one that anyone undertakes lightly. Right? You know, you've, you've got somebody... A, a patient who's on the table who's trusted you uh, to film responsibly and broadcast that uh, their procedure and they have no right to withdraw consent because you know they're under general anesthetic they're having you know life-saving surgery and the surgical team also have to trust that you are going to do the right thing by them as well so there was a long process uh, of uh, writing protocols, spending time with the surgical teams. We observed each of those surgeries so many times to make sure that we really knew every step of what was happening. And then what you don't see in that clip, but if you saw in the bottom uh, right-hand corner of the screen, there's a, the box, there's kind of action with that, within action. What we did was, we, so we needed to be really clear that what we weren't going to do was interrupt the uh, procedure. Uh, as it happened, um, so the surgeon was could only speak when he felt he was able to, um, and we didn't want to put any pressure on him or any other members of the surgical team to fill in when you know no one was um, explaining what was happening. So we borrowed. So this whole idea of uh, innovating form, uh, we borrowed the grammar of sports broadcasting where you have the commentary team who are on the sidelines who, you know, in snooker or in, in soccer, when they're watching the action and commentating on it. So we had in uh, a booth in the hospital grounds, not anywhere near the, the theatre, we had a, a host and another uh, leading surgeon who was incredibly qualified and who knew that procedure, you know, inside out, back to front, had done over a 1,000 procedures, same procedure, and they sat and they observed. They had live feeds on screens in the commentary booth. And so what that enabled us to do was for the presenter to then ask all the stupid questions. Like, you know, when they kind of like, what's that yellow stuff? What's that thing that he, what's that instrument that he's using? Why is there so much blood? Is it safe for him just to cut that lining? What's he feeling when he's cranking that chest open? All those questions, which the audience would be asking, Nikki, the presenter, then just asked all those questions of the surgeon sitting next to him, who was then able to answer all those questions. So you have not just the layer of storytelling of what you're seeing, the action that's unfolding, and the surgeon in the room talking to what he's doing. You've also got that secondary layer of somebody asking all the questions that we want to know in the moment. Because what's the point of being live if you can't, in the moment, ask those questions? And, and Nicky Campbell, who was your layman asking the yeah. questions, yeah. he was actually the host of Top of the Pops, I understand. <laughs> he was. And Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> yes. And that is some Wheel yeah. of Fortune you've got going there. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like, yeah. there's a, there's a real right. irony right. of of what is happening there on a different level as well. I think it would well. be a great pains to also <laughs> say that he is a very experienced journalist. 
Good. But there's flavour there as well. I mean, I guess that that's the thing. This is something that happens to anyone at any time yeah. and, and we're, we're bringing it home. Right? And actually the, choosing Nicky as the host was really important as well because he came to it unafraid to ask those really, you know, he wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to look stupid by saying, yeah. you know, why is he doing that? Uh, you know, at times he said, oh, God, I can barely look. Right. Um, not to, you know, be hysterical about it, but just to give voice to... To, uh, what the audience, the audience experience? Yeah, I'm, Twitter exploded uh, on that night when that, and people were just tweeting. I cannot believe this is live. This is is this really actually happening right really? now? And it, yeah, I mean there were um, very careful safety measures in place to protect the team and to protect the patient. But yeah, it was happening as people were uh, were watching it. Nerve wracking moments. For everyone. Yeah. I mean, God, I'm a, a complete weight loss program doing that. But, you know. <laughs> I think it's really interesting, this idea also for linear broadcasters to embrace live. In that, They have to, yeah. right? I mean, what, what's going to give them the edge over SVODs? You know, live events, that's yeah. what. And, and so that plays, uh, Operation Live plays out uh, for three consecutive nights at two hours at a time from 9 to 11, uh, which is a massive undertaking yeah. for any broadcaster to put that level of commitment uh, onto one production and that's you know yeah you know, again that thing about you know it's a combination of our expertise in the medical sphere um gave us the courage to do it and gave channel five the courage to say yeah okay well let's let's go for it we're going to do it let's do it big and got the BAFTA nomination got the BAFTA nomination as well. um against harry and megan's uh, wedding <laughs> Bloody royal wedding. <laughs> there honestly. we go. Yeah. Um, so an amazing audience response. We've also got another clip. I think it's um, interesting just to have a look. It gives you a little bit more of a sense of the grammar of the show because we've looked at some of it here, but maybe we can have a look at the next um, clip as well. Yeah, I can talk about, a bit about that afterwards as well. Okay. So now we're going to remove the kidney. Let's take it out of the box, please. Okay. And certainly I will have a look at it again and then we will start planning for the next step, which is to start clamping the blood vessel so that I can put the new kidney in there. So now I'm going to take the kidney out of this box. As you can see, it's inside the eyes, but it's also inside three different bags. The outside bag is the non-sterile, inside there are two sterile bags. The kidney is kept inside a kidney perfusion solution, a temperature between 2 and 6 degrees, to preserve the organ and to slow down, actually, the, and to reduce the metabolic demands of the organ, and also to maximize the function of, of the organ after the reperfusion. So I'm gonna, using an aseptic technique, I'm gonna open the outside bag so that Theo can take the two bags inside it. As I was saying, it's sterile. Yep. So that is basically just a plastic bag. It is just a plastic bag, yes. There's no great medical technology no, on this. There's, there's no magic involved. It's just the contents that's important. Uh, something about metabolic. Yes. So, Rajesh, what, what was that? So we're talking look, about. Look, look, look. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? There it is. 
So there we heard uh, Layman Nikki talking. Yeah. We were, saying, and we were there in the gallery saying, ask him about the bag. It must be something really special, that bag. Ask him about the bags. And he goes, so what's the bag? What's the bag? It must be, and say, yeah, it's a plastic bag. Like, you get the butchers. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but that story, so that was from um, series two of uh, Operation Live. And what happened was Channel 5 recommissioned the series before the first three had even finished going out okay. uh, because it was such a huge success. It made so much noise. Um, and so we then were thinking, well, what do we do for season two? And that story was a story of a kid, a living kidney donation where a father was donating his kidney to his son. And so earlier in the day, we filmed the extraction of that kidney from the father. And then we went live that evening with the implant of the transplant of that kidney into into the sun. So that's you know, that's an extraordinary story of selflessness and you know, really heartwarming story which was uh, the wrapper for for that surgical procedure. And and as you said before, the broadcast has given you a two hour slot for these yeah. things to play out and hopefully they have played out. Did you get to the end of the, the time in, in any of the episodes and have to jump out or had you pretty much completed your stories? Well, in, so in series one, the, the selection of the procedures was really careful. We uh, observed lots and lots of procedures before we chose uh, them. We chose them for all the usual TV reasons. It's got to be a variety of storytelling. We've got to see you know, different uh, actions from different parts of the body so the audience feel like they're getting something new every night. But also they had to be... Uh, surgeries which were completed within the live windows. So uh, we chose surgeons who were incredibly skilled uh, in the procedures, so were really at the top of their game, uh, and surgeries which, after observation, we saw always were completed within that two-hour window. Uh, so on Series 1, they always... In fact, what happened, we found what happened was with the Series 1... Uh, with the heart surgery, we thought, oh, we'll get to the end of the valve being replaced and maybe get a little bit of stitching up, but uh, the, the surgeon, he's one of the leading cardiac surgeons in the UK, uh, with uh, just like the little adrenaline rush of live, he actually, and, and the surgery was really straightforward, so he went, sped straight through it, and by as the credits were rolling, he was closing up the final stitches. I mean, it was just beautiful. Wow, like, you couldn't have, so couldn't have planned it better. Uh, with, the, with the kidney, what happened was it was a little more tricky once they got inside. Because, you know, the thing, they, don't, they don't know what they're going to find until they open up. So, it, you know, you are properly on the edge of your seat thinking, we don't know how this is going to go. Um, and it was, it took longer, that procedure. Um, so we actually... Uh, the, the commissioning editor was in on location, and he just phoned through to the channel and got us an extra fifteen minutes. Wow! So we just ran, we ran for two and a quarter hours for that one, so that we could see up to the end of the crucial part of of the procedure. So you have to be really primed to be. Yeah, and uh, what, what would have happened if you'd run short? We would have had to say some singing and dancing or something. We'd, uh, What's no, backup so, situation there? Well, we had so in in that two hours. So you're you're in the operating theatre almost all the time, but we also pre-film small VTs, and the VTs are right. like little um, uh, interviews with down the lens interviews with a surgical team who might talk about why they got into surgery, what it's like seeing a human heart for the first time, or what it's like holding a kidney in your hand. It gives insight into the team 
who are, and also because they've all got their masks on, it also gets you uh, connected with them in a more intimate way. So we have all those VTs, we have um, some graphics of the procedure that you're going to see as well. And we have, we have those all stacked up and we would always go in with about 15 minutes worth of, uh, actually probably more, about 20 minutes worth of, uh, of VTs. And we just, uh, you, can't, you do it by feel. So you know where they can fall, all those VTs, but if the action is gripping, just let the action play. Um, but we always had, uh, so in case we needed it for the end, uh, so we didn't have to do a little singing and dancing number. We always had some VTs, which would be about, you know, kind of a general wrap-up type. Great. You know. And where were you yeah. during the procedures? In the gallery. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. So that's one way to approach medicine. Tell me a little bit about another show that you've just kicked off. We've just uh, seen your new series launch on uh, BBC in a week or two ago. It went to it air was, February uh, Thursday last yeah. week. Okay, okay. On Thursday. So this is uh, really essentially appealing to millennials, I guess you'd say. Yeah, yeah, it was. So where. Operation Live uh, did really well for older audiences, or it did, it did score extraordinarily well, actually, with, with youngs as well. But, uh, you know, it's a very particular type of uh, medical uh, programme. Uh, um, we talked to BBC Three about the fact that they didn't have anything that was formatted, that was medical, uh, and we came across this uh, quite remarkable new on-screen talent. She is a doctor, uh, and she self-identifies as black, queer, androgynous. Uh, she's got a really... Uh, she's got an extraordinary route into medicine. She self-funded her way through medical school, uh, so she's not your usual doctor. And she was doing a bit of kids' TV, uh, and we saw her and just thought she's quite interesting, so we developed a format idea... Uh, around her and uh, we've just uh, made that into a pilot uh, for a series see how that goes um, and that went live on BBC3 on Thursday and has um, it's provoked quite a uh, quite a response actually well, in let's the UK. Have a, yeah let's have a look at the clip and then let's talk about that response afterwards Dr Ronks me um so for about four or five years mm -hmm. i've been wearing loads of different types of binders never liked the idea of wearing bras when i was sure. when i was growing up my parents would always like try and push it on me and I thought, sure. No. Sure. seeing myself in a mirror doing yeah. just doing anything really yeah it's kind of a constant reminder Binders are garments worn by trans men or gender non-conforming people to basically give the appearance of a flattened chest. I think it's difficult for you because you are naturally quite a large size as well, so you're actually the same size as me. Really? So, yeah. I can't, <laughs> I can't walk a lot, I can't run a lot, I can't do a lot of exercise because it just... Because of your binder? It compresses my chest so much that I just can't breathe properly and I can't really leave the house without it. And he's meant to be a large, so he wears two sizes down. And then also, we've been, we are the exact same bra size. Like, I'm currently wearing a bra he used to have to be, like, wear when he was younger. What size so, are you, if you don't mind me asking, I'm September? I'm a 36D. 
36D. You're 36D. This is like not me like judging. I'm just yeah. like, wow. Okay. It will get to the point where we'll walk down the street yeah. and his ribs will move out of place. Oh. And he'll have to stop and he'll just start crying because they pop out. It, and yeah, also around, his yeah. spines kind of started, when I met him, he's very hunched. And I always thought that was just his natural posture. But it's because he's wearing such tight binders, his spine's just constantly going over. And also because... Can you see my face? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wow. Okay. So I yeah. get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. Now, I've got a wide selection of binders and have a feel of these, Frankie. Are they like the ones that you've worn before? No, not at all. A lot better, a lot more reinforced. They're more like reinforced on the front. Exactly. Yeah. Like that is pop <laughs> To get a flat chest aesthetic. And then here, can you feel like they're just more, yeah, yeah just more room. That's so yeah. different to yours. Yeah. September, how do you feel about me showing on you how to do it and then you could do it on Frankie? Happily. Like yeah. in the toilet or somewhere. <laughs> yeah, sure. With Frankie, just by their, their kind of posture and kind of the way they look down and they're just really into themselves, that you can really see that they are not comfortable with their chest and they probably don't want to show me. So to try on September makes sense in my brain because all I want to do is make Frankie comfortable and Frankie is not comfortable showing me their breasts. So this binder that you got on feels... It's great, comfortable. Yes. It's very rare that I would be in a binder and feel even a little bit comfortable. I'm very happy. <laughs> Fantastic. Now, listen, why has it taken you so long to come to a doctor about it? Um, I've been quite a quiet person and never really wanted yeah. to speak over my parents. Yeah. And if they, were, if they said, wait and see how you feel in a few years, then I would wait. And I was like, okay, I respect that. And then I kind of started getting very tired of it and no, noticing more that I was actually feeling the way I was feeling. And I was like, I, I, I need to do something about it. Still, Tell me how you were feeling. Um, it brought on a lot of depression, and a lot of anxiety. Mm -hmm. I've had anxiety since I was a child anyway. Mm -hmm. So this kind of... Um, heightened it. I didn't like going outside because I thought people would look at me weird. Yeah. I never wanted to get into a relationship and yeah. kind of shied away from that. Yeah. Because yeah. I was like, they're going to think I'm weird and yeah. this is just going to be too much. 89% of trans young people report suicidal ideation. And I think if that statistic was related to people that had diabetes or cancer, we'd be like, terrible, absolutely terrible. We need to do more. As doctors, we know that if a trans person feels heard, that that can help towards improving their mental health. So the onus is on us, really. So... Why controversial is what I'm wondering. Do, do, does anyone in here have any sort of thoughts on why this may be controversial to the British audience? Because um, a reactionary audience will see that as advocating for trans. Yeah. And, and pushing people who are just depressed or anxious into that as a solution. I think... Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right that uh, there, there has been a reaction from people saying that we are... Um, there's there's a, a lot of debate at the moment in the UK about uh, how young trans people or people who have got some kind of gender dysphoria are being treated. Uh, and so uh, we, there's been a reaction against that clip uh, in particular. 
uh, and about the way in which ronks give somebody who's wearing, uh, who she's, uh, she, she knows uh, about binding. She's got personal experience um, of it all. And so she comes with medical knowledge and with uh, personal knowledge of it. But uh, and Frankie is 18, so Frankie's made a decision to bind. Uh, and what Ronks advises is to, for Frankie to bind safely and to bind well, to bind in a responsible way, which won't cause uh, any physical damage, which the way in which Frank was binding for was causing. Uh, but there was a reaction, there's been a reaction against just the very notion of binding and about whether that is something which uh, doctors should be, as you say, should be advocating. Now, you know, what Bronx is doing is giving proper advice about something which choices that has already been made. She's not saying to someone, you should go and start binding, which is very different. Um, but we've been, I mean, I, I've been really interested by that response and uh, but it really shows that when I when we first came to that story we, we found Frankie um, you know this idea that you know that we've got an agenda is is you know is, is bollocks because we found Frankie through street casting you know as you would for any uh, program like that the teams were going out and just talking to young people uh, about any medical questions they had which they hadn't been to see a GP about which they might want to talk to a doctor about and Frankie was found in that way we didn't go targeting trans people at all Frankie was just there in the street and Frankie said I want to talk about what's going on so and Frankie's story is in a mix of a really wide range mm -hmm. of stories in that program uh, but uh, it's the one that's been singled out but it's also in a mix because one of I think the things you've talked about throughout this conversation is really the importance of diversity, of yeah. representation, and, yeah. and trans is part of our community, um, just as, you know, Ronks is a really interesting character, and I understand, you know, there's there's quite robust policies now in place in broadcasters in Britain to try to hit diversity on screen. Can you tell us a little bit about... Yeah, there's been a real... I mean, you know, if you ask anyone in UK broadcasting, they say, well, we've always been, you know, keen to ensure that uh, our programmes are... are diverse but I mean, the notion of diversity has really fundamentally changed in the last five years I'd say so whereas before it was you know it used to be about you know first it was about gender, gender. and then it, uh, about race and now it's uh, you know gender before was just about you know have you got enough women working on the programs right, or in the programs and now it's about being representative of the range of gender identities uh, and also of social class as well. So there's a real understanding that, you know, and I think it is driven by, whether we like it or not, it's driven by the commercial imperative. You know, broadcasters are realising that if we do not have programmes which talk directly to our range of audience uh, that are watching, well, they're, they're just not going to tune in. We're going to lose them. We are going to commercially suffer and, you know, and it's been shown uh, in lots of other uh, non-media uh, industries that by pushing the commercial imperative button, that's when you know, organisations and industries take note because they just think it's going to affect our bottom line. We need to keep our audience, we need to keep our consumers, our clients, or what, you know, whatever it is. So there is a much greater awareness of the uh, imperative to be... Uh, diverse, not just it's not just a nice to have; it's mm. a must have mm. now. Um, and yeah, I've, I've said it before, but you know, for me, not being diverse is a bit, it's a bit like you know, it's a bit like climate change. You know, you've got to do something about it. You can't just sit and watch it and say, "Oh dear, that's a bit." You know, you've got 
be in the conversation. You've got to be acting mm. to, to make the difference. So, yeah. So we've got a little bit of time left before the end of the session and I'd like to be able to uh, throw it open to the room if people have questions relating to any of the clips we've seen, whether it's about crime, about the medical. My first hand was up the back there. Do you want, Can we try and get a, a microphone? Yes, you've got yeah. a nice loud voice. I've got a loud voice. Um, thank you, Liz. This is great. Um, as soon as I'm around, I'm going to show pictures of Having worked on reduced shows live, I understand the risks involved in doing that, commissioning that. With regard to operational live, did you have any, or were you concerned about, did you have any operations that were not successful live on air? How did you manage that? It was definitely something you have to consider because we don't know what's going to happen in a procedure. The way in which the patients were selected by the surgeons, not by us at all, we were always guided by the medical professionals. Um, the surgeons selected patients who were there, were, there were all kinds of, you know, careful uh, protocols in place. So nobody was ever moved up a, a waiting list to, you know, be fast tracked into surgery. Um, but uh, within a window, when people could have that procedure, the surgeon would look across at the people and, first of all, you know, uh, look at people who they thought uh, were otherwise fit and well. And so the surgery would be more, most straightforward. If there are people who had other health complications, then we just said, look, you know, we, we won't, you know, those people were, will always have their surgery, but they won't, we, we're not going to broadcast that. So there were measures like that that, we, that uh, the medical professionals put in place and we talked about with them. Uh, and then we, um, we worked with the hospital about protocols around what we were doing if things took a bit longer, uh, then they were meant to, or if there were things which a surgeon just thought, hang on a moment, not quite sure whether the family watching would want to see this part of a procedure. If I can't explain it, but I just need to do it, then we knew, for, you know, for example, the, the VTs that we had, mm. they knew that they could, they could safely tell us without it being broadcast live, and also the surgeon who was sitting alongside... Um, Nikki could also see what was going on. And inside the broadcast truck, sitting next to me, uh, I also had another, I mean, we were full of surgeons. I had another surgeon sitting next to me who knew that surgeon well, knew that that surgeon's work well, and knew the hospital and knew the procedure. So they were just a voice in my ear throughout the two hours who could just say, that's taking a little bit longer. Oh, that's gone smoothly. That's not, that, but yeah. So we were really finely attuned to what was going on on screen in many different ways so we could react accordingly. Let me jump down here. Hi, my name's Rami. I just wanted to see if you can give a little bit more insight into particularly the diverse minorities that go on these projects, whether there are protections that are in place to go and give out. Thank you. Post that show, the racist trolls. I've learned about the project of development and I put a pitch online where whenever it goes to a certain region of Australia, I get racist trolls coming in. Mm. Yeah. For yeah. So with uh, the unshockable Dr. Onks, uh, all the um, contributors who talk about, in an extended fashion, in the way that Frankie did, about uh, personal medical issues, we psych evaluated all of them. Uh, and that was a pre filming process uh, to make sure that they would be robust enough uh, to talk about what they were going to talk about. Um, and then when we made the program, on the day that they 
came to be filmed, we had a supervising GP off screen. Uh, so Ronks and that GP would talk to the contributor when they came to be filmed before we started filming to make sure that on that day that those two medical professionals felt that it was appropriate to film with them. Uh, the doctors would then talk about what they were going to talk about on camera. Ronks would then talk to them on camera. After we finished filming, the Ronks and the off-screen GP would then talk again to the contributor to make sure that they were happy with the advice, that they'd received it correctly, that they knew what to do, and that they could then make an uh, on-location assessment as to whether that contributor might be uh, adversely impacted by the process. After that, we stayed in touch with all the contributors and asked in touch with all the contributors and offered them psych follow-ups as well. And then we have um, a whole social media protocol, which is basically, I mean, the bottom line is when the program goes live, don't go on social media. Mm. You know, just yeah. don't. And don't ask anyone to tell you about what's on social media uh, about that program. Give it 48 hours, give it a week, uh, and then come to social media. And then, you're, you know, it's passed. With the... the um, reaction to that Frankie story we had to loop Frankie back in and tell him about the reaction because there was a lot of reaction to it and because uh, there was a story in the Sunday Times as well so with the same psych the same psychologist who'd done the initial psych evaluation we carefully uh, talked about how to bring Frankie back into the conversation and then talk to Frankie and I'm just, you know, really basic things like there's a production mobile, it's on 24-7 when that program goes live, any of the contributors can call in and say, I'm having a wobble or I've had, this has happened, that's happened. We just, you have to be there for them. We take that duty of care incredibly seriously. You know, these are young people who are talking about things which are personal to them, which they haven't been to see a doctor about. You know, it's, you know, it's crucial that we carefully treat that trust that they've placed uh, in us and in our program making skills and that they get something out of it that's positive um, because otherwise you know this is just tv that's their lives you know yeah making a program doesn't finish at the moment that you finish tape no. it's it's the whole of the publicity and and post screening very important and that's even more uh, of an issue now isn't it and it's something we, yeah. we're talking about constantly because these programs live forever yes you know they're online and it's not just it, it tx on wednesday night and that's it yeah. and you might be able to catch, watch it on catch up for a month or something it's online and it's just online mm. um and there was one uh one of the stories was a young woman who was diagnosed with thrush and she said i'm just really nervous there's going to be because if you edit it in a way where there might be a meme that's created, she thought it all through. What about if there's a meme created where you're talking about thrush and it's my face? And, you know, and so we had to take on board that was her concern and make sure that she, everyone saw all of their contributions before they uh, you know, went live. Mm. And that's you know, basic, that's standard. They had to see them. They had to make sure that they knew what was coming down the track. Everyone was talked through it. Um, but we have to take on their, their real-life concerns as mm. well doesn't mean you compromise your program making that means i think that you're a more responsible program maker so we don't finish on thrush one last question <laughs> do you want to jump in here um really great to hear that you've Thank you. Um, really great to hear that you've innovated in the process around production of care in this space. But what other kind of like format tropes were you looking to avoid um, in in this series, knowing that there have been series in this space that have received a lot of backlash and seem to exploit? 
in the medical in the, in the Unchuckable Dr. Ons programme. Yeah. We didn't yeah. want it to be embarrassing bodies. Yeah. Um, you know, that was really important. If, you know, if young people are coming, they don't want to make it feel like they, you know, they've been ridiculed uh, or that they're open, they're being opened up to ridicules. So... And Ronks was really clear about that as well. She comes with a real sense of social purpose uh, and a real passion uh, about that as well. So she stays true to her ambitions for the programme as well. Uh, and then when we were talking about thrush and bacterial vaginosis or whatever else it is, we just make sure that there are a couple of stories that are in the mix. And then there are other people like Frankie talking about binders or there's someone else talking about some other trans surgery they're thinking about and somebody who there's a young man who sweats too much uh, and it's just about the treatment of those those stories there's no shock horror uh, around it even though they're you know intriguing and surprising stories when you know it is you want to make a television program that people want to watch uh, as well as take something from so just tonally we just we were always just measuring to make sure they didn't feel like it was shock shock value so it was the impact outcome to normalise these experiences of people as opposed to embarrassing bodies, which is to sort of look at the exotic other sort of thing? But so it's, the, uh, the idea is to encourage young people to take responsibility for their own health care uh, in ways which they may not have thought about before. So young people who thought, I don't want to go to the GP because GP is not going to understand me. This is just opening up and saying, you don't just have to go to the GP, but your GP is not a bad place to go. There are other uh, places you can go which are available in the uh, NHS, um, which will give you support that you need as well. And that you, you are not other because you've got this mm. as well. And that's really important. So I would like you all to round of applause, please, for Ninda for all of her insights today. It was really fascinating. I hope it was useful. And, and really taking inspiration from the, the broadness and, and playfulness in, in your work as well. I think that that's really telling. So I hope that everybody in the room thinks about the things that they're good at and thinks about the things they want to stretch into and the, the ways that we can borrow from different genres mm. and, and expand and bring innovation to our work. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you.